Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 152, Dr. Michael Rota on Evidence for the Christian God. Dr. Michael Rota earned a Ph.D. in philosophy from St. Louis University. Since then, he's been a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's published in prestigious venues such as the journals Faith and Philosophy, The Monist, Religious Studies, The American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, and The History of Philosophy Quarterly. He's here today to discuss his new book called Taking Pascal's Wager, Faith, Evidence, and the Abundant Life. Dr. Rota, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. My pleasure, Dale. Dr. Rota, perhaps some people turn to the wager because they assume that there just is no significant evidence for or against the existence of the Christian God. Why do you think people assume that nowadays? Dale, I do think there is significant evidence for Christianity, but it's also true that lots of people don't think that. And there are people who just sort of assume on complex topics where there's no agreement there must not be good evidence. That's not always true. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are complex topics where there's disagreement, but then which uh, eventually we figure out, oh, this is the answer. And looking back, we see that, oh, the evidence was there all along, but we weren't, we weren't adequately considering it or not enough people knew about it. The evidence that smoking was harmful accumulated over a period of time. And there were times when the evidence was there, but people weren't accepting it yet, or people didn't know about it yet. So the first reason many people might think that there's no significant evidence is just a quick inference from the fact that there's continuing disagreement. A second reason they might think that there's no good evidence for Christianity is that people do have different evidence bases. We've all had different experiences, been exposed to different arguments, read different books. So it could be that there is good evidence for Christianity, but you just haven't looked at it yet. But then there's a third thing going on, which is that no one is totally objective. Human beings are subject to all sorts of biases. We accept things we want to be true. We accept claims that people we admire or are close to accept. It's hard for us to be totally objective about new evidence. That is to say, it's, it's easy to ignore, disregard, or not look at evidence that contradicts what you already believe, whereas people find it much easier and more natural to remember and focus on evidence that confirms what they believe. So the widespread disagreement about Christianity might have something to do with the fact that not everyone's totally objective. And the Christian is not exempt from this. So I think in doing philosophy and philosophy of religion, we have to do our utmost best to care about what's true and to really try to figure out what's true, even if we might not want it to be the case even if it's not our pet theory. I also find that students frequently use the word tangible when I'm discussing this with uh, students in a philosophy class. And I think some people just don't want to count anything as evidence unless it's physical evidence. Mm, I see. The kind of thing that you could handle or at least observe with scientific instruments. Well, we're not exactly like claiming that we have God's footprints or, you know, that you can just look in a telescope and there he is he's behind that star. It's not like that, but I mean, why would you think that all evidence was sensory evidence? Right. Dr. Rota, in your new book, 
taking Pascal's wager, you explain why, in your view, it's more likely than not that the Christian God exists. And your first move is a version of what philosophers call a cosmological argument, arguing from physical reality back to something like God as its source. Why isn't it enough just to say that the universe comes from the Big Bang? Well, because we're left with the question, what caused the Big Bang? Just looking at physics, we don't have a clear answer to that. There could have been physical reality that preceded the Big Bang. If something like multiverse theory is true, we can talk more about that. Or there could have been a supernatural cause to the Big Bang. The cosmological argument is an argument that tries to move from the fact that physical things around us exist to the claim that there must have been some very different sort of being which created all these physical things. And the cosmological argument comes in many different versions. I like a version that's a combination. Uh, it's in, inspired by Leibniz and Suarez. So Leibniz was one of the two discoverers of calculus, along with Isaac Newton. He was also a terrific philosopher. Francisco Suarez was the last great medieval philosopher, and they both gave versions of a cosmological argument. Here's the version I draw from their work. To understand it, we need some terms. Let's say a contingent being is a being or a thing that exists, but didn't absolutely have to. Didn't have to exist in the way that two plus two equals four. Okay, on that definition, all the things around us are contingent beings. I'm a contingent being because my parents didn't have to meet. I mean, that didn't have to happen. It happened to happen, I'm glad it did, but reality didn't have to include me. And the same can be said of all the physical objects around us. It's not impossible that you could have had a reality without that or this object. A necessary being then, if there is one, is a being that, a thing that exists and absolutely has to exist, which can't not exist. So the existence of a necessary being, if there is one, is as necessary as it is necessary that two plus two is four or that either the sun exists or it doesn't, for example. Mm -hmm. This is what philosophers call absolute or metaphysical necessity. Mm -hmm. Suppose I have a top hat before you, which appears empty, and I pull out of it a rabbit. You're surprised, and you say, how'd you do that? And I say, I'm as surprised as you are. The hat was empty, and then the rabbit popped into existence. I pulled it out. If that happened, you wouldn't believe me, I think, because you know that contingent beings like the rabbit don't just pop into existence. All the contingent beings that we have any experience with have some sort of causal explanation. In popular presentations of physics, you sometimes hear about virtual particles which pop into and out of existence. But if you look at the physical theory a little more carefully, there's always some underlying field or some entity out of which the virtual particles come. So that's not a counterexample. At any rate, we have good philosophical reason to think that no contingent being exists without a cause. And the reasoning goes like this. Take any contingent thing, like that rabbit. By definition, it's contingent, which means reality did not have to include it. Which means there were two possibilities for how reality might have been. The world could have had that rabbit, or the world could have not had that rabbit. And given that these were both real possibilities, and yet the rabbit's here before us, we have a natural intuition that there must be something which explains why the one possibility was realized rather than the other, why the rabbit is here rather than not. Now you can take that same reasoning and apply it to groups of contingent things. 
So if I pulled a whole heap of baby rabbits out of a top hat, you wouldn't say, oh, that's not surprising at all because there's a bunch of them. No, you'd have the same sense that there's got to be some explanation of where those rabbits came from. And in the same way, we can consider a big group, the group of all the contingent beings that exist now and that have ever existed in the past, all the contingent beings. And we can note that none of those things had to exist. They're all contingent. So there were two possibilities for how reality might have been. It might have included them all, as it in fact did, or none of those things might have existed. So why is it that we're in the one possibility rather than the other? Well, we don't know, but we know there must be some explanation. There must be some causal explanation of the existence of all the contingent beings that have ever existed. Next, we can ask, what would that explanation have to involve? And the thing to note is that the explanation can't involve only contingent beings. Because if you're trying to explain why there are any contingent beings at all, and you only mention the activity of contingent beings, you're going to end up having to argue that there's some contingent being which caused itself to exist, which doesn't seem possible. So to avoid circular causation, we need something outside the group to explain the existence of the group. But our group contains all the contingent beings. There's only one other type of being, given the way we defined our terms, and that's a necessary being. So it looks like we have excellent reason to think that at one time, there was at least one necessary being which played a crucial role in the causal explanation of all the contingent beings that surround us. Furthermore, if there was once a necessary being, we also know that it must still exist because by definition, if there's a necessary being, it can't not exist. So if you have reason to think there was a necessary being at one time, you have reason to think it's still around. So that's an argument for a necessary being that produced contingent things around us. That's the cosmological argument. So someone might chime in here and say, well, but that's not God, or it's not clear if that's God or not, because you said at least one, and because you just said it was a necessary being. But on the other hand, this is not a trivial conclusion, is it? Correct. I think it's not a trivial conclusion. So thus far in the argument, we haven't shown that there's only one necessary being. We haven't shown that the necessary being has a mind or is a person. But still, if there's a necessary being, and we've come to have good reason to think that, we know something that you won't find in any physics textbook or any science article. All of physics talks about contingent reality, but a necessary being, something that couldn't not exist, this is not an ordinary everyday object, and it's certainly not the sort of thing that, that physics studies. So, yeah, the conclusion that there's at least one necessary being is important. But it's a far cry from proof for the existence of God. Maybe there are trillions and trillions of little tiny necessary beings, and they're the ultimate constituents of matter. And they don't have minds. And they've always been here, and they always will. That's possible for all our argument has shown. So we need more if we want an argument for the existence of God.
But at least we've shown it's false that all things are physical things, because any physical thing we're aware of, it looks like, can come into existence and go out of existence. That's true, although isn't it possible that there could be a necessarily existing physical thing? That's an interesting question. For anything we can think of from a galaxy down to the smallest particle, I mean, right. can't scientists specify conditions under which it would never have come to be or which would make it cease to be? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right. We have great inductive evidence that all physical things are contingent. I guess it's maybe not a deductive proof. But regardless, we're going to need something to get to the next stage of the argument for God. Right. So how do we do that? How do we go beyond just one or more necessary beings? My favorite way is with the fine-tuning argument. So here's the idea. Let me sketch some science background and then give a simple version of the fine-tuning argument. It turns out, and this has become apparent in the last 30 or 40 years, that there are many features of our universe that had to be just right in order for life to be able to appear on the scene. So we're living in a Goldilocks universe, so to speak. If it had been a little different in this way, a little different in that way, looks like there would be no life. The strongest example of this is something called the cosmological constant. This is a parameter in physics. That is, it's a number. It's a parameter in physics that relates to the expansion of space after the Big Bang. Physicists have known for about 100 years that space is expanding. When they say that space is expanding, they don't just mean that the objects in space are moving further apart from each other. They mean that space itself is expanding. So here's an analogy to help us understand. Imagine you have a balloon, which you've blown up partially. You draw two dots on the surface, and they're two inches apart. You blow up the balloon further, it expands. Now the surface of that balloon has a different shape. And those two dots, which used to be two inches apart, they're now four inches apart. They haven't moved away from each other across the surface of the balloon, but it's the surface itself that's bigger. That's what's happening to our three-dimensional space, or whatever sort of space we have in reality. It's expanding. And scientists thought it was expanding at a decelerating rate, so the rate of expansion was slowing. The 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics went to uh, two teams of researchers who discovered that actually the rate of the expansion is slightly accelerating. So space is expanding more and more quickly. The interesting thing is that this parameter in physics, the cosmological constant, which governs the rate of expansion of space, it has to be just right in order to allow for life to emerge. Here's why. This was a discovery of um, Steven Weinberg, the Nobel Prize winning physicist who's an atheist, his work mm -hmm. in the 1980s. He realized that if the cosmological constant were a tiny bit bigger, then after the Big Bang, matter would have flown apart too quickly because space would be expanding more quickly and matter would not have ever been able to coalesce to form stars. Only with stars do you have the production of the higher elements. So you can get hydrogen, helium, and lithium without stars. But all the higher elements, all the atoms of higher atomic value, were forged inside stars. So no stars, no higher elements. If you don't have higher elements, it's extremely unlikely that you could ever have 
life because you wouldn't have the sort of stable complexity that's required for self-replicating organisms. Mm -hmm. Okay, so life as we know it requires chemistry. Chemistry requires some higher elements to have the sort of material objects that can be alive and that requires star formation. But if the cosmological constant were just a teensy bit bigger than it is, you wouldn't have had any star formation. If the cosmological constant were just a tiny bit smaller than it is, and, and it was a small negative number, then soon after the Big Bang, the universe would have experienced a big crunch. You might have had a universe that lasted 10,000 years, for example. You simply wouldn't have had enough time for life to emerge. What's striking is how fine-tuned the cosmological constant appears to be. If you just look at the physics we understand, you would expect that the cosmological constant would be somewhere between zero and 10 to the 120th, and then we use a certain sort of units. Of all those ranges, actually I think it's between negative 10 to the 120th and positive 10 to 120th. Given all those possible values, could have been 17, could have been 3 million and five, all those possible values, you would only get a life-permitting universe if it were either negative one, zero, or one. Something like that. I mean, it's just an absurdly small fraction of the possible values. Mm -hmm. An absurdly small fraction, which allows for a life-permitting universe. So this leads physicists, atheists, and theists alike to think there's something extraordinary going on here. It can't just be a coincidence. Here is Stanford University physicist Leonard Susskind. He writes, when the laws of elementary particles meet the laws of gravity, the result is a potential catastrophe, a world of such violence that astronomical bodies, as well as elementary particles, would be torn asunder by the most destructive force imaginable. He's imagining a cosmological constant that's too high here, and space is expanding too fast for any matter to remain together. He continues, the only way out is for one particular constant of nature, Einstein's cosmological constant, to be so incredibly finely tuned that no one could possibly think it accidental. So we need an explanation of this apparent coincidence. Now here's one explanation that some physicists and many philosophers have offered. They've said, look, we already have reason to believe there's a necessary being, some different sort of being, at least one, behind the universe. If we add to that the hypothesis that that necessary being has a mind, then we have a great explanation of this apparent coincidence. If there is a mind behind the universe, if the necessary being that provides a causal explanation of contingent beings is a personal being, then it might well have reason to design a life-permitting universe. So if, for example, that necessary being is like the Christian God, then it knows that life is valuable because it knows all true propositions. God knows all true propositions. God would have a reason to create a life-permitting universe rather than a universe just filled with protons. On the other hand, if the value of the cosmological constant is just the result of some random process, then it's extremely unlikely that we would have gotten the cosmological constant we got. If there's just a chance process behind the universe, or if there's no guiding designer, we should never have expected to be here at all. So we've got a very improbable event. So either God exists or something absurdly improbable has happened. It's more likely that God exists. It's more likely that a designer exists. That's the general idea behind the fine-tuning argument.
Dr. Rota, what is this multiverse that I've heard about, and why do many cosmologists and philosophers think that it shows there's no need to appeal to God to explain apparent fine-tuning in our universe? Yes, the multiverse objection is the strongest objection to the fine-tuning argument. And Leonard Susskind, who I read from earlier, this is his preferred explanation of the apparent coincidences involved in fine-tuning. I mentioned the cosmological constant. There are many other cases where things seem absurdly just right to allow for life. So the multiverse explanation says this. We used to think we're in the only universe there is, but maybe that's not so. Maybe there's a vast number of separate bubble universes, so to speak. The vast majority of them will have cosmological constants that don't allow for life, but in a small fraction, they'll be life permitting. So why is our cosmological constant life permitting? Well, the explanation has two parts. The explanation is because we're in a multiverse and because of an observer selection effect, that is to say, since we're alive, we couldn't observe anything unless we were in a life permitting universe. So all the rational living beings throughout the multiverse that look around and take an observation to see if their life their universe is life permitting they'll find a life permitting universe so the thought is the multiverse explains why there are some rational beings living beings in the universe because there were so many chances for life to arise in all these different bubble universes so we have to imagine not only that there are a super high number of universes, but that they somehow maybe were randomly generated or some process gave rise to them which could shift around the basic constants? Yeah, and that physicists speculate about how this might go. But yeah, the, to have a philosophical hypothesis here, what we need is the claim that there are a large number of universes and they have a variety of different values for their physical parameters. So the thought is they might have the same laws of physics, but certain constants will be different. In this universe, the speed of light is slower. In that universe, it's faster. Gravity is weaker here. It's stronger there. The cosmological constant is just right here, and it's wrong in all these other places. So that explains why there's some living beings in the multiverse. And then what explains why we're one of the lucky ones? Well, nothing explains that. Someone was going to be alive, and it just happened to be us. So the explanation seems to make sense. I mean, if I ran across some, I don't know, Scrabble pieces that spelled the word help, I would assume that somebody had done that on purpose and was trying to tell me something. But if I found out that a billion times a billion times, four random letters had been ejected out, and this was just one of those, well, I guess you're going to come up with help eventually. Right. Although in that example, there's no selection effect where I'm only going to see it if it says help. Right. But I guess we understand the basic kind of reasoning. Yeah. So that's the strongest objection to the fine-tuning argument. And different philosophers have offered different responses. Different defenders of the fine-tuning argument have offered different responses. I myself think the multiverse objection can be answered by developing some thoughts due to Roger White. He has a famous paper from Noose 2000, I think. He argues something like this. The multiverse explanation could explain why there are some living beings. But it doesn't explain why this universe is life-permitting. Let me try to develop this line of thought. So let's say we play a game of chance, and it's going to go like this. I have a six-sided die before me. I'm going to roll it ten times in a row. If even one of those times it comes up six, 
then I'm gonna say yes at the end. So you're only gonna hear one thing from me, either yes or no. You can't see the dice, you can't hear the rolls. I roll the dice six times, then I say yes, you know that there's been some six rolled in the set of 10. Okay. If we played that game and I said yes, you'd know there'd be a six. If we played that game, the greater number of rolls that we include in the game, like if I did 100 rolls or 1,000 rolls, it would make it more and more likely that I would be shouted, that you would hear a yes at the end. So it's more likely that you get a six. But what if the game worked like this? Dale, I'm going to roll it 10 times, and I've picked a random number between 1 and 10. Like maybe it's 3, maybe it's 7. But if I've picked 3, then it's the third roll that will count, so to speak. If the third roll is a six, then I'll say yes at the end. If the third roll is not a six, I won't say yes at the end. We play that game. There, the probability that you'll hear yes at the end won't change whether I'm going to roll the dice 10 times or 100 times. Because what matters for whether or not you hear yes is whether the third die comes up six. And that's not changed by all the other rolls around it. Well, notice this. It's possible to think, for example, that if your parents had never met, you wouldn't have existed. Maybe there would have been another Dale Tuggy. Right. Maybe he would even have looked like you, but it's possible to think it wouldn't have been you. Mm -hmm. In the same way, if there were many universes, there might have been replicas of us. There might be replicas of us, but that wouldn't make them us. For us to exist, we need this matter that we're made of to be arranged just so. And maybe we need the soul too, but certainly we need this matter to be arranged this so. So here's the thought. If there are all these other universes, it doesn't change the probability that we'll be here. What matters is the probability that this universe would be life permitting. Suppose the multiverse hypothesis is true. We should be incredibly surprised that we're here. And we have a piece of evidence, namely that we exist, which was extremely unlikely to be true. So when you're doing probabilistic reasoning, you want to pick hypotheses that probilify your evidence. That is to say, you want hypotheses that are able to not make it so unlikely that what you observed occurred. You want hypotheses that predict, so to speak, what you actually see. The multiverse hypothesis predicts that some alien somewhere will be alive, but it also predicts that it almost certainly won't be us in this universe with this matter. So we're left with this extreme coincidence that we're left being lucky ones. Whereas on the designer hypothesis, the probability that this universe would be life permitting, well, if it's created by God, he would have reason to make any universe he created life permitting. So what I try to do in the book is I argue as follows, an argument by cases. We're not sure if a multiverse exists or not. Either it does or it doesn't. If there's no multiverse, if this is the only universe there is, then the evidence for fine-tuning is excellent evidence that there's some sort of designing intelligence behind our universe. But what if there's a multiverse? Even then, we still have good evidence for a designer. Because if there is a multiverse, well, even then, either a universe designer might exist or not. I mean, maybe God created a multiverse. So suppose there is a multiverse, and let's take each case in turn. If there's a multiverse with no designer, and everything's up to chance, then there's something very unexpected, namely our existence. This universe was unlikely to be life permitting. On the other hand, if there's a multiverse and God's behind it all, the creator of all the different universes in the multiverse, then it's not so unlikely, not nearly as unlikely that this one would have been life permitting because God would have reason to make, for each one of them, he would have some reason to make it life permitting. 
you could put it this way. In a theistic multiverse, you'd expect the proportion of life-permitting universes to be much higher than the proportion of life-permitting universes in an atheistic multiverse. And that means that we have some evidence that we're in a theistic multiverse rather than an atheistic multiverse. Here's one more analogy to help us think about the multiverse theory. Imagine that we have two physicists, they're each giving us their favorite multiverse theory. Neither one involves God. Hypothesis number one, 50% of the universes in the multiverse will be, will be life permitting. On hypothesis number two, only a minuscule 0.0001% of the universes in the multiverse will be life permitting. The question is, does our evidence favor one of those hypotheses over the other? And it seems to me that it does because we have evidence that this universe is life permitting. And that's much more likely on the first physicist hypothesis than on the second. Dr. Rhoda, the go-to objection for recent atheists has been the problem of evil, that if there's a perfect God, then we should expect his creation to be either 100% evil-free, or at least have a lot less evil than we now see in it. And arguably, the problem of divine hiddenness is a variant of the problem of evil, because it seems bad that not everyone has evidence which compels him to believe in God. In your view, recent work by Christian philosophers helps to answer these objections. Can you walk us through those answers? Sure. Let's start with the problem of divine hiddenness. So here the thought is, if God existed, then he would have made his existence obvious to everyone in the way that the desk in front of me is obvious. Why? Well, if God existed, he would love us all. Therefore, he would want us all to have a relationship with him, which would be helped if we believed in him. So we would have reason to give everyone compelling evidence. Since that hasn't happened, we infer God must not exist. I think the most promising response to the problem of divine hiddenness can be found in the thought of Kierkegaard. I'm adapting this a bit. Imagine there's a king and he falls in love with a peasant woman in his kingdom. Say he hears about her good character, he sees her from afar, and he wants to marry her. But he has a problem. If he comes to her in all his royal splendor, he's going to make it hard for her to make a free decision for the right reasons. So it's going to be hard for her to say no to the king. And even if she is free in her decision, it's going to be hard for her to be motivated just by his character, by who he is. And suppose this man is a virtuous man. He doesn't want a trophy wife. He wants a real marriage. And he, he really wants a marriage where his wife actually loves him for who he is. So what can he do? He's got a problem. Kierkegaard suggests, here's what he could do. He could disguise himself. He could move to the town as an ordinary laborer and try to meet this woman in the ordinary way, thus giving her a chance to freely choose him for the right reasons. He takes a terrible risk in doing this, but because the value of her freely given love is so great, he thinks it's worth the risk. And this is an analogy for the case of God and human beings and divine hiddenness. The thought is, yes, God wants our belief, 
But he wants something else even more. He wants our freely given love and he wants us to choose him for the right reasons based on who he is and not just because we're afraid of him or we want good stuff. So the thought is God remains partially hidden to make possible a greater good than mere belief, namely the good of our being able to freely love him for the right reasons. Peter Van Inwagen has some excellent stuff written on divine hiddenness. He also has written a wonderful book on the problem of evil. Eleanor Stump, her book Wandering in Darkness from 2010 is my favorite contemporary book on the problem of evil. So this is the argument that says, if God exists, then there wouldn't be so much suffering in the world, but there is, so God must not exist. Van Inwagen and Stump give what I take are the two strongest responses to the problem of evil, and so I try to summarize them in the book. Both Van Inwagen and Stump give versions of the free will defense, which proceeds as follows. God created many good things, but he also wanted to create very good things, beings like himself who had intelligence and free choice. When God creates free beings like ourselves, he wants to give us some significant say in how our lives go. And that means he's opening up reality to the possibility that we'll misuse our freedom and introduce evil and suffering into the world. Now, Van Inwagen and Stump both develop a version of this free will defense. Stump draws on Aquinas and a long medieval tradition, which says that God allows suffering as a sort of medicine. God allows suffering because it provides an opportunity, either an opportunity to ward off the greatest possible evil for humans, which is eternal separation from God, or suffering can sometimes provide an opportunity to help a person get closer to the best thing for humans, which is eternal life with God. So suffering can be an opportunity for spiritual growth, or at least an opportunity to ward off the worst possible outcomes for humans. Very briefly, the thought is, if there weren't any suffering, too many fallen human beings would be content to ignore God and his proposed remedy to the fall. So suffering gives people an opportunity to turn away from earthly goods and to put their hope in God. Dr. Rota, in one of your chapters, considering evidence specifically for Christianity, you discuss what some call the minimal facts approach to defending belief in the resurrection of Jesus. If someone objected that it's simply incredible to think that a man came back to life on the third day after his death, how would you reply? Well, what we think is incredible or unbelievable depends on our background beliefs. Here's an analogy. Suppose you're an anthropologist and you're in a remote region of Papua New Guinea in 1943. You're studying a tribe who's had no contact with modern technology. And one day a member of the tribe comes back from a hunting excursion that he's been on by himself and he's extremely excited. And he begins to tell the rest of the tribe about an experience he had. He said he was at a remote lake and there was a huge sound. A giant stone bird flew down through the sky, landed on the lake, and a human being crawled out of its head, looked around. A few minutes later, got back into the head of the stone bird and flew away. And they're trying to make sense of this. Some of the tribesmen say, this person is an honest person. It's unlikely that he's imagining it. I mean, it lasted for 10 minutes, let's say in total. So this must've happened. Other people in the tribe say, look, with all due respect to our friend here, we know that people sometimes are deceived. They have hallucinations. We know that can occur. We know that sometimes people lie. We also know that there are no such thing as stone birds that with people in their heads. It's just yeah. not, this is not believable. Maybe he had some bad coconuts. 
Maybe he had some bad coconut. <laughs> so the thing to conclude is that he's either deceived or lying. Okay, so the tribes, people argue about this back and forth. But here's my question. How should you think about this? You who know about airplanes and pontoon landing gear. There, it's, it's very believable to you that the gist of the tribesman's story is true. In the same way, your response to arguments for the resurrection will depend on the prior probability you assign to the existence of God. If you're absolutely certain that there's no such being as God, then you'll probably think, even if the evidence for the resurrection looks strong, historically speaking, there must be a mistake in here somewhere because this is simply impossible. If you think God might exist, then you should think, well, yeah, this could have happened. If God wanted to make this happen, he certainly could have. So if we start with a decent prior probability for the existence of God, the argument for the resurrection can be very strong. Right. It seems an obvious way that God could vindicate someone uh, who's God's agent or prophet or the son of God. An obvious way that he could vindicate them would be to raise them from the dead. So if you're right, as you argue that we should believe that resurrection actually occurred, that would be a powerful confirmation that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Right, and he's worth listening to. So, there are many Christian doctrines. The resurrection is just one of them. But epistemologically, it has a special place. If you come to believe that the resurrection occurred, you gain warrant for all sorts of things that you take Jesus to have said. On the theory that uh, the only way this resurrection is going to happen is if God's involved. And if God's involved, then... I mean, he couldn't not expect us to trust someone who was resurrected. So since God's not a deceiver, we should take this as a vindication of Jesus's teachings. Dr. Rota, in part three of your book, you sketched for us some very memorable portraits of three recent Christian lives. And so that I don't give any spoilers for the book, I'll just say a German, a Canadian, and an African. Dr. Rota, how, in your view, are these examples relevant to a person who is investigating whether or not he should believe in God? Well, you might put it this way. I heard uh, someone say once that the longest distance in the universe is the distance from the head to the heart. You could come to have some sort of intellectual appreciation of the evidence for Christianity, but making that next step of personal commitment to a way of life can be difficult. Aristotle says that humans by nature desire to know. And it's scary to make a massive life commitment without certainty and knowledge. I think it's possible to know that Christianity is true, but for the convert, that's not often the way it's going to look to the convert. Suppose you're considering a Christian way of life. You think there's good reason both to think that it's true and for you to commit to it, but you're finding, finding it difficult to make a commitment. Well, one thing you might do is look at other people who've made this commitment and see how it's worked out for them. And that's what I try to do in the book. I sketch the stories of three recent exemplary Christian believers to try to show how a Christian life can be beautiful, fulfilling, meaningful, morally praiseworthy, because so many of our decisions are influenced by our imagination and our desires. And if we can't imagine ourselves flourishing in the Christian life, it's going to be very hard existentially to jump right in and live that life. So I think looking at the lives of exemplary believers can inspire us and form our imaginations and hence make it easier to give it our all, so to speak. Dr. Rota, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much, Dale. 
Again, the book is called Taking Pascal's Wager, Faith, Evidence, and the Abundant Life. It's by Michael Rota, R-O-T-A. This week's thinking music has been the track Phase 4 by Lo-Fi is Sci-Fi. As always, there's a link at the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download the whole track. If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's podcast, don't forget to share this episode on social media like Twitter, Facebook, or Pinterest. Doing this will help get the word out about the podcast. Finally, many thanks to Daniel in Pennsylvania for his monthly donation through PayPal. Much appreciated, Daniel. If you'd like to support the podcast, just look for the orange buttons on the right-hand side of any blog post. If you've listened to the podcast for very long, you know there isn't any completely set format and that our topics jump around to many interesting things. So there'll be something different next week. We'll see you next Monday. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.